What's up, guys? Welcome back to episode 11 of the For the Berg podcast. I'm your host, Ron Gaeta. My guest today is Jack O'Shea from Bayside. Jack breaks down every single Bayside record. He gives us his favorite song from each album. He gives a bunch of love to Pittsburgh, and he also gives us his daily jag-off. It's a good one, guys. Enjoy. Nope. Mr. Pop. All right, guys, I have Jack O'Shea from Bayside. Jack, thanks for joining us, man. How, how's it going? It's going well. How are you doing? Well, I guess as well as anyone can do, I guess, right now. <laughs> yeah, same, same. Awesome. Yeah, I'll get right into it here, buddy. Um, can we just get into your earlier musical influences? Sure. Uh, when, when you decided you wanted to play music for a living and uh, or when you knew that was an actual possibility? Yeah, I mean, I got my first. I had a friend who sold me my first guitar when I think we were like eight and a half years old. And he was he and I kind of were listening to a lot of the same stuff. He tuned me into a lot of like hardcore and kind of like harder rock early on. So I remember being in junior high, listening to a lot of like Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax, and then also a lot of like Zeppelin and ACDC. And I guess I think I got I think I might have bought Appetite for Destruction the week that came out. So kind of had a lot of that early on. And yeah, he and I just used to have form all these like bands where we were living at the time and have all these like kind of basement shows. So. I don't know if you consider that. I guess that's sort of like it was an indicator for sure. Um, I guess and as things started to progress, you know, everyone kept playing. All those guys are still actually a couple of those guys are in Dropkick Murphys now. And then um, a lot of them are still kind of in touch with. And yeah, I went through high school and stuff. Wasn't really sure that I was going to do anything with music. I actually went to college to be either I did. Uh, I was originally pre-med and then I ended up doing studio arts and, um, and English and was doing a lot of marketing for a while. And then just kind of unpl- just not really stoked with the direction that everything was happening. So I had a, an offer through a friend who I was in, I was playing in bands for fun in New England. And um, one of the, the drummer in another band that we played with was offered an opportunity to play drums for Bayside. And then he said, hey, they might be looking for a guitar player. They might be getting signed. This is something if you're interested in doing it, we could take a couple years off your life and just go check it out and try that. So at, even at that point, I wasn't sure that I wanted to do this for real, but figured I'd give it a shot. And then that was 2003. So, you know, flash forward 17 years later, you know, like, oh, shit, here I am. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've always I've, I've always played guitar. So, I mean, from even as young as, again, like eight and a half and nine, playing, writing punk rock songs, playing through high school, playing through college, getting into a lot of different a lot of different influences. I mean, kind of starting off with like heavy, heavy music, like rock, metal a lot of classic rock, um, hardcore stuff, and a lot of punk rock. And then kind of, you know, as I grew up, I ended up with, I went to college with some friends who were kind of jazz players doing like New England Conservatory. So I ended up kind of picking up a lot of other weird influences, ended up getting into a lot of like Alan Holdsworth and Aldi Miola and other players, got into Zappa from that. And then, you know, have always enjoyed like elements of pop, specifically like 90s pop and um some Britpop stuff. So all that just sort of mixed together. And the stuff that I listen to now is pretty much all of that stuff, too. Nice. <laughs> I listen to a lot of rock, a lot of metal, a lot of jazz, and uh, and kind of a lot of 90s alt stuff. So 
it's all it all just seems like a blue. it's funny because people are like oh your whole life it's like yeah it just, it just seems like one big long day and it's all still <laughs> happening and it's all kind of like the same stuff i haven't had any mega left turns where it's like and then i went through this period and all <laughs> i was doing was eating salad and listening to the ramones and then i did this and this. it's like no just kind of it's always been it's just i'm listening to the same stuff that i was i still listen to new music but um I don't, Nick in our band, Nick and Anthony in our band aggressively seek out new music and I feel like I fall into creature comforts where I just, or just, you know, I, I fall into like comfy places where I, I like what I like and a lot of the exploration ends up being lateral from stuff where I'm like, if you like Gentle Giant, you might like this other obscure prog band from the 70s. You know, like, oh yeah, I'll check that out. And yeah, and, and here we are. So again, yeah, I think like influences for me have always been important and that's, I like that they're varied and I like that it hasn't always been just like, um, I only listen to metal and I sound like a this or I only listen to this. So yeah, it's been, it's been a fun, it's been a fun ride. <laughs> awesome. Uh, you mentioned new England. Uh, where are you from in new England? I grew up in Massachusetts. I grew up in central mass. Okay. I, I oh. lived in Maine for three years. That's the only reason why I asked. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Up and I, up. I spent Portland, a Maine. lot of time in Camden and, uh, which I guess is up on the coast. And then my brother was a Orono guy. So I nice. spent some time up in the, or Bangor. Yep. Cool. So like we talked about before we started this here, um, the thing I've done with a couple of the guys here, um, just a little album run through here, just like a quick story about each album or the recording process of each record and um, just maybe your personal favorite song from each. Sure. So right. we can start from the beginning. Uh, Sirens and Condolences. Yeah. So Sirens was 2003. Again, like I had just joined the band. I wasn't really sure what was going on. I sold my car. I got moved out of my apartment. I moved all my crap into my parents' house and went in a, in, a, in a minivan with the drummer at the time to New York to meet Anthony and at the time, Andrew. And I was just like, well, it's kind of a gamble. And we got down there and I think that was in April of 2003 and we recorded Sirens in I think October of 2003. So it was only a few months later. So I came in with a handful of songs that existed. I think Bayside at the time had enough material to barely do a headline set, maybe like a 45 minute set. And we were writing and kind of got into that process and, the bass player we had at the time wasn't an exceptional musician. I think that's the best way I can put it. And I didn't realize this until we got to the studio. We recorded with Jay Robbins at Phase Studios in College Park in Maryland, which I was pretty excited about because it was going to be my first kind of like official going into the studio and doing a full length LP. It wasn't just like going in and tracking a demo or doing songs with a buddy. It was kind of like we're making a record. We got down there and I think Jim, who was the drummer, and I were like, hey, where's Andrew? He's like, oh, Anthony was like, oh, he's not coming. I was like, oh. He's like, I thought maybe you could play the bass. <laughs> so I was like, all right, fair enough. So kind of did double duty on that record. And it ended up being a lot of fun. I mean, Jay Robbins certainly comes from, compared to a lot of other records, he does a lot more coming from Jawbox. I think just a much more like an indie mentality. So I think the production is much, I think indie is probably represented a little bit more in the production quality of the record. I think I like the way it sounds. I think it's different for a lot of other Bayside stuff. Also, at that time, Andrew was in the band, and Andrew was the main lyricist for that record. So I think, lyrically speaking, Bayside at the time was definitely on it, was tilted way more into like what I guess would be a traditional emo lyrical style. So a lot of, uh, I don't want to... I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to oversimplify it, but a lot of like boohoo, like, oh no, kind of right. stuff. And I feel bad saying that. I don't want to make light of that, but it's just, but that was kind of that record. And that record was a lot of fun to make. I had a lot of fun playing bass. I think when we got through, I got through playing bass and then did all the rhythm guitars. And I remember distinctly Jay being like, okay, let's move on, give me the vocals. So I was like, wait a minute, I gotta, I still gotta play. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, we already got you. I was like, no, 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 that was bass. He was like, well, 
you're the bassist. I was like, no, I'm not. I was like, I'm the lead guitar player, man. I was like, I have never played. I was like, I've played bass for fun, but I, I this was, I got to do, I got to do the rest of the stuff. And he was like, where's your bass player? I was like, I guess he's not good enough to be here. It was this, that was decided <laughs> without me knowing about it. So that was, that was that. But as far as songs, I mean, that whole recording process was a lot of fun. We were, the, me, Jim and Anthony were in Maryland for about three weeks. We were in a kind of staying in a hotel in and out of that studio all the time and it was just a it was a good it was a good bonding for the three of us anyway because jim and i were tight from being from jim was also from boston um at the time so we came up together so he and i were already tight and we had done a lot of shows together with our respective bands back home so it was good a good opportunity for us to hang with anthony as far as favorite song on that i think i really like um we kind of we actually demoed uh, Poison in My Veins with Don Fury in Coney Island as leading up to using Jim J. Robbins. We decided we were going to kind of look around and Don Fury was like, hey, I'm interested. And of course, being like a being a fan of hardcore at the time, I was like, Don Fury has done everything New York hardcore. He did like Rados, he did all the quicksand, all the youth of today, Gorilla Biscuits, like Don Fury was like the revelation hardcore guy. So that was really exciting. We went in and we demoed Poison in My Veins. And I think that was the first time when I realized I had to write solos for because I think the band that I had been in, the solos were all very loose. It was a lot of improv, like really noisy. So this is the first time I was like, should I actually have to kind of compose solos? So I remember while Anthony was tracking vocals, I just disappeared in the other room and wrote the solo for that. And while I was doing it, I was kind of looking at like, I'm like, oh, that is the Victim in Pain master tape right there. That's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, went into that. So Poison in My Veins sticks out for me just because it was one of the first solos that I'd written. Uh, but all those songs, are. I think we kind of talked a little bit about Masterpiece being the first track and how we wanted to have that album open up really hard and just like bang we wanted we kind of referenced monkey wrench as something where we want it was like just comes out swinging and just explodes immediately um as far as my favorite song i really like talking to michelangelo on that and it's one of the ones that we all four of us love playing that song but for some reason nobody ever wants to hear it <laughs> we're always like hey we can play this and everyone's like yeah or don't everyone that's, just wants to hear guardrail every that's like guardrail is the is the gag so i feel guardrail has become our free bird in the sense that i think if we go to a song somebody's going to be like play guardrail yeah. and like i don't even know that you want to hear that song i feel like you're just fucking with us from doing these with a couple of the guys it seems like that's kind of a theme that the songs they want to play the kind of the, the uh, fans don't really take to as well but the ones that they want them to play it's like man really <laughs> that's moving on to the next album here um the self-titled yeah so we finished that cycle in uh, end of 2003 2004 and at the time, our drummer and bass player were just not feeling touring. I think Jim, who at the time was like, hey, I want to, I we had talked about maybe just doing this for like a year or so and then getting out. He's like, I think I'm going to do that. And I was like, you know, I'm really enjoying myself, so I'm going to stick around. And then I remember Anthony, we was we had just finished the tour with Fall Out Boy, and I think Jim and Andrew both like, we're out. So it was me and Anthony sitting in a room. I remember we were at it, like, I, we just went to go get some food. And he was like, what do you think? And I was like, it kind of depends on who we get. And then... I think Anthony was working at an Urban Outfitters and he met Nick and then Nick knew uh, John Beats. So a couple weeks later, we were just sitting in a room with Nick and, and Beats and I was like, this feels really good. So we kind of immediately got into working. We were in some crappy rehearsal space in Long Island and we just started banging out what would become self-titled. And that was, I think that, whereas Sirens was a little bit more indie, I think with with this, I was kind of really leaning into the more heavier aspect of it and still still trying to can maintain like more of a rock or more of like a melodic rock element so i didn't want to go full 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 tilt but certainly with some of the solos on that i think that there are songs like i think with like devotion and montauk being like just the heavier songs in general and then having more kind of intricate solos on there 
kind of catching my stride in that respect. I think that that one was a lot of fun. The producers we used for that were uh, Shep and Kenny, which is like a, a team they ended up doing. They came almost exclusively from a pop world. They had done a lot of pop stuff and they were looking to get out and kind of start doing more rock. I think they had done their rock credits were stuff like, I think they had done like Marcy Playground. So rock, but still kind of way with a, with a, with a real pop, with a real pop leaning. Uh, but like, you know, they'd done like Mandy Moore and LFO and things like that. So it was, and then they were like, we're going to do your record. And I was like, this is a heavy record. I don't know that this is a good fit, but they were, I think Anthony really was in, Anthony's always wanted to be, uh, Anthony really loves pop music, like deeply, like he loves, not like everyone likes pop music because it's candy. You know what I mean? It's like, I like candy, but I think Anthony really appreciates, he really goes in and studies pop music and really wants to understand like a lot of the, the science behind why it's candy. And I've never really cared that much. I'm just like, yeah, fuck it, I don't care. But these guys were pop. And I think Ant really took a lot from them as far as like production and songwriting and stuff like that. So there are certainly elements, their influence has rubbed off. And we did a few records with them. So we went in, they had their studio was in Manhattan. So we all basically rented small apartments in Manhattan for a few weeks. And that was, you know, my first experience of really living in New York City. And John and Nick were new in the band. So we all had a we had a blast. I think we we went in with the songs. We had just been kind of hunkered down in a, in a practice space writing. And then we were out recording and going out in New York. And it was a that was a really fun time. And that record was fun. It was a little stressful. I had growing pains in the band as well, because I was pushing myself to do more solos. I was trying to get more technical and probably push things heavier. And I fought the producer a little bit because, again, coming from a pop world, he he had no idea why I wanted to put in like why why should there be a 16 bar solo in here why should this why should that happen why don't you just play why are your leads moving so much why shouldn't you why don't you just play like dan 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 i was like man that's not me that's not it. so we fought we kind of butted heads a lot and we fought and eventually kind of we compromised and came up with some good stuff for that record uh as far as favorite songs actually this is embarrassing i gotta i have to look that is that's a gray area i gotta figure out what songs are I don't want to be like my favorite song on this record is this, and then you're like, that's someone. Not someone calls it out. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, sorry guys, that that always blows my mind. People are like, you know how to play every bass side song, don't you? I was like, no, I don't. I mean, right. I do. I would. It would just take me a little while to figure it out. Some fun stuff. Okay, so Hello Shitty, the intro to Hello Shitty, and there's like a little like that little sound clip of like New York City. I had a little like mini disc recorder that I spent while we were recording, just wandering around, like getting little audio clips of the city. There's like some subway noises in the in the uh, Montauk pre-solo part. So there's like, that was kind of a fun thing. Let's see. Uh, I've always really liked my favorite. I think one of my favorite songs on that, I really always liked playing uh, Half-Life because that solo for me was a kind of a throwback to more like Zeppelin-y classic rock stuff. So that was one. And we still get to play that a good amount. We play a lot of this album live. I feel like a lot of these songs where a lot of our set lists typically gets made up of this and Walking Wounded, which I think are kind of like two of the records that had the most commercial success anyhow. We, I mean, I, I like a lot of this record. We've played a good amount of it. Dear Tragedy is always fun because it's in an odd time signature. And that's uh, always a little bit fun to play. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's that's self-titled. And then we'll go to Walking Wounded. Yeah. And then you mentioned it, the, the Walking Wounded. Walking Wounded. So... I mean, well, actually, in between that, we had our accident in 2005. So right after Self-Titled came out, we started a tour, which was going to be a big tour for us. Hawthorne Heights was kind of in their full swing, and they were doing a big tour, and we were kind of friendly with them. They had us come onto that tour with them, with Silverstein and Aiden, and I was only like two or three shows into that. We had our accident, so Anthony and I ended up finishing that. As uh, we we went home for funeral, kind of decompressed for a week or so, and then joined the tour for the last few weeks. 
wearing it and I kind of just decided we were going to do it as an acoustic duo. And then that, I mean, that the that sort of birth that what was, you know, I guess all of our acoustic career kind of popped out of out of that thing when we realized that was like, oh, well, at least we can we have we can do this. So we finished that. We came back. And again, I found myself. I remember being in Cheyenne and, and Wyoming and Nick was in the hospital and Aunt kind of came up to me again. He was like, what do you want to do? How do we do this? I was like, I don't know. We'll have to see who we can get. And we had a fill in for a little while. Um, we had some friends play. We had a our friend Nick Nightbeast played bass for a few tours when we did a tour with the Smoking Popes. And we had a we were we had a guy referred to us. This guy Gavin, who used to play in a band called Staring Back with uh, Ryan Mendez from Yellow Card earlier, and it just didn't work. It wasn't really a good vibe. It wasn't a good fit for us. So he left, and then we met Chris through some mutual friends in Long Island. And you know, Chris is about ten years younger than me. And he came in and he was super just hyper and like very like like kind of excitable and just like stoked on everything. So we played with him and he's a great drummer. And immediately we were like, this is going to work. So we went, uh, we toured a little bit and then got to work and back in the back in the woodshed, so to speak. We were back in that crappy rehearsal space that was like we were sharing with the sleeping and like the movie life. And it was just like gear everywhere. There's like nowhere to stand. It was just kind of like a nightmare scenario. Got in there, wrote it, and then we recorded that in Queens with um, with Shep and Kenny again, same same duo, and it was like same issues where they were like ah, too much, too much. I, I think that that was one of the ones where I was like, Shep, you gotta leave. Just go, you and Anthony <laughs> leave the studio for the rest of the day, and you let me just work. You let me do whatever I need to do, and then you come in tomorrow. And if you don't like what I've done, if you have issues with it, if you think it's gonna mess up the record or whatever, then I will go back gladly and I will I will pay attention. But like, can't I can't go on like this. And uh, they went away for the day. And I, that day I did like the Walking Wounded solo. I did like basically all the heavy lifting for me on that record, which would have been like, I guess, Walking Wounded solo, uh, Choice Hop solo, and a lot of the weirder kind of stuff that I was doing. Uh, some of the stuff from like, thankfully, some of the more the kind of just the, the more weirder parts. I was like, well, if he, they're gone, I'm going to do it. And the engineer, this, it was Kenny Joyo, who was like, I love 80s stuff. He's like, I love metal. I love that. He's like, just just do what you're doing. It's great. I love it. So went through that. And then, yeah, that was just a, that was just a, again, it was a good, it was a good process. We were in Queens. I was staying with Nick at the time. Uh, so I was kind of staying with him and his family out in uh, Deer Park, which is kind of like central, getting out towards East Central Long Island. So it was a good like hour, hour away from the studio. But I, I ended up having a great time with that whole period of like staying with Nick and uh, through, I guess, end of self-titled into um, going into going into this period was a lot of fun. It was good bonding. And favorite song on Walking Wounded? Hmm. I'm going to go with Choice Hops. I use that. I reference that a lot. There's a there's a ton of that solo is like such a, a mashup of a bunch of different guitar solos that I always really like. There's like some Jakey e. Lee and some Mark Knopfler in there and probably a little bit of Randy Rhodes, but that's a, that was a fun one for me. Awesome. So, yeah. Then we had Shudder. So Shudder yep. was Shutter's next. last Victory record. And we were we were about this was this was going to be our last record on Victory um, before our contract expired. And uh, Victory offered us an opportunity to do a live record and release both Shudder and the live record on the same day, which we thought was weird. But we were like, sure, whatever, let's do it. So we did Shudder with Dave Schiffman, who is the producer who is he's done. a He's done a ton. Actually, he has a he has a crazy amount of credits at the time. What he he'd been Rick Rubin's engineer for a long time. So he had done he had engineered a lot of like Red Hot Chili Peppers. And like, I think what he had personally done, though, he had done a lot of like the Mars Volta stuff. Um, 
he did he's actually in, in recent years he's done a lot of the pup stuff he was doing engineering on like adele's 21 he's definitely done he's put a nice little thing together for himself yeah but we did that record in california we all that would have been the first time we left so we weren't in we weren't in the east coast but we all four of us flew out to los angeles stayed in a stayed in an oakwoods apartment and uh did it did it in red bull studios and it was one of those ones where it felt different with all the songs in general anyway um i you know it's funny i feel like that's such a polarizing record people love shutter or they don't like it at all and i think that we kind of came into it and we were like well this will be our last record on victory and then we're going to see what happens and we had been doing pretty well we were going to do this in a big studio in red bull it was exciting we kind of had some we did like a week of pre-pro with dave Schiffman and it was one of those things where I kind of I tend to write better in the studio kind of on the spot. So I'll come up with loose plans and then kind of really hammer everything out once we get in there. And I think it scared him a little bit when he showed up to pre-pro. I was like, yeah, I'm just listening still, man. I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> uh, but we got in there and that was a, that was a lot of fun. And I think that that was um, there's a lot of stuff on there that's a little bit. Rochambeau was really fun. Just like kind of like that was the first like super kind of quick double time thing we had done solo and have fun storming the castle has always been one of my favorite called arms was like my super like tried I, I wish i could be chris cheney i love the living end type <laughs> um boys kind of fun we have a lot of stuff that i, I refer to as monsters music or where it kind of has that almost like um monsters or adam's family where it goes kind of minor in a in a circusy way and that one ended up being a lot of fun we, a victory ended up picking no one understands as a single for that and it was one of the ones where we were like, it seems too poppy. I don't think it's enough. We've kind of learned as we go that the more poppy the song is, the less likely it is to be a single. We should just go for something weird and let people figure it out. Do you guys have any control over that, over what gets picked as a single or any say? I mean, to some degree, we can we can offer our we can offer our opinions. But ultimately, if the label's like we're pushing this, it's like they're, oh. they're going to pick what they want to pick. OK, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's our record, but it's your record. My favorite thing about this was when I had a I had a weird I don't know where it is. I think Chris has it somewhere. I have a weird outtake of no one understands where it's the intro of just guitar. And I don't know how I played this, but it's. It's both out of key and out of time. And then I make a change that makes it sound like a computer error. And it goes in. And I haven't heard it in years, but I, I'm remembering it very fondly. Uh, favorite song? I like I Can't Go On A Lot. I think that might be my favorite song on the record. Uh, it has sort of a, I'm a big U2 thing. And that's not actually dotted eight delay stuff. That's actually all, uh, that's all picked eighths, which is a nightmare to try to get that tight with two guitar players playing kind of harmonized, uh, harmonized tight pick eights on that. But it came out good, and there's a lot of the kind of like that ambient, like edge style delay comes out in where it, where it opens where it opens up a little bit. So that is Shutter. Live record came out at the same time. That was one that we were like, well, we're gonna do a live record. We basically set it up for our fan club and went to SIR in New York City, did it in like their Studio One room, and it was it was a blast. That was like a lot of fun. And then Ted Hutt, who has done. A lot of other notable things. I know most notable for us anyway at the time was the Gaslight 59 sound, but he's done a ton of other stuff. He basically came in and we touch, we did touch up stuff. We didn't really change too much. I didn't really do any patchwork, but he, we kind of did a listen through and went in and it was like after that we had played and everyone was kind of like, I think I had had a couple drinks. I was hanging out with my wife at the time. We were listening down and it was kind of a good hang. And yeah, that's fun. I don't, I can't really say that I've spent a lot of time listening to that because I don't need, I lived it. I didn't need to, I don't need to do it. Right. <laughs> so then we left, so we left Victory and now we're on, now we were looking for new labels and Wind Up at the time wanted to sign us. And at the time Wind Up was still very heavily involved with radio. They had stuff like Finger Finger 11. They were still doing great with like Evanescence and Drowning Pool and Seether. So it was kind of like at that point, it was like, this is an active rock label. 
with a lot of money. They make Creed. This is like, they can put money behind you and you can make a crazy record and they will push you internationally and they'll push you domestically. Maybe you do some active rock festivals and active rock tour, but definitely get some radio. So we're like, yeah, let's, great. This will be a good shot. Let's do it. So we signed and they gave us a bunch of money to make a record and they were like, who would you make a record with? And we said, Gil Norton. And he had done a lot of the Pixies records, but the one record I mentioned earlier, we had referenced Monkey Wrench as like a hey, I want to, we want something that's going to sound like this. And I'm like, well, who did that record? Who did Color in the Shape? They're like, Gil Norton. So we'll ask Gil Norton. So he came from England and we did it half in, we wrote for a couple of weeks up in Woodstock at Jerry Murata's house, which is kind of fun because he is like a crazy studio drummer. He played with like Elvis Costello and he's played with like, he's, uh, I think he, he it was Peter Gabriel's drummer for a long time. Um, and his brother is also a phenomenal drummer who played with like Steely Dan and stuff. So it was like one of those, but he has this house up in Woodstock and it's exactly what you would think like a drummer who was like in like that type of music living in Woodstock, his house would be like, it was just kind of rad and just mm -hmm. all over the place and just fun. And he has a studio up there called, uh, Dreamland. So we wrote up there, we did the first half up in Dreamland. And then during this whole thing, we had been demoing songs with Wind Up. They had a studio called Quad Studio in New York City and Times Square. So we were in and out of that studio. And we had demoed, I think, like Sick and Mona Lisa and uh, Already Gone. We had like four or five of the songs demoed already. So we went to Woodstock. We, we did the songs that we had demoed through Wind Up. And then we took a couple weeks off. And then we were in Hoboken, New Jersey at a studio, Water Street in Hoboken. And we did the second half of the record there. And uh, that was my favorite. I think that might be my favorite recording experience, just in the sense that we had a, we had a budget. The songs were very developed. They, we already had demos that sounded album quality anyway. So like Wind Up was very hands on with everything. They were really kind of pushing us to, to write and write. I had some of my some of my most sort of adventurous soloing on that record at that time too. So. It was good. Just everything seemed to be falling in place. And of course, like as soon as the record is about to come out, Wind Up changes ownership. So I think we had like a full on like. Wind Up is still technically an indie, and it was an indie label, but it definitely had more of a major vibe. And then I feel like we got a total, we got major labeled where they were like, yeah, all that stuff we said we were going to do isn't really going to happen. So Killing Time, which I thought was at the time certainly was our best record, didn't even have like a worldwide release. It was released in US, Canada and Germany. I think that might be it. So we kind of just went through that cycle. But again, like that was a that was a fun that was a fun time. Those were that was a that was a great record to make. And still, I think that still might be my favorite Bayside record. Nice. Um, then we went. So we weren't going to go back with Wind Up. And when we were looking at other labels, Hopeless approached us, and we signed with Hopeless, and then we put out Cult. And Cult was kind of an effort to be a little bit heavier. We went back to Shep, and at this point, Kenny had left, and he had a new engineer called Aaron. So we did it with Kenny and Aaron, or with Shep and Aaron, anyway. And similar issues as far as like me fighting, a little bit of butting heads, but I really liked a lot of this stuff. There's um kind of stuff with it. Actually, is it one of is that Big Cheese had is like one of my favorites. But we don't play it that much. Hate Me is definitely one of my favorites. Also, we haven't really played that much. Pig's Die is actually one of my all-time favorite bassline songs, but I like playing it acoustic so much more than I like playing it. <laughs> um, That's and, a question I have for later, don't worry. Uh, so yeah, that I mean, changing labels again, I think 2014, I had just, Anthony and I were like, just while we were recording that, Anthony and I were both leaving New York City and moving to Nashville. Chris and Nick were kind of getting ready to move out to California, so kind of transitional in a lot of respects, but uh, like, the, like the record, had fun touring with it um vacancy first record that we made in nashville we made it with um oh god uh tim o'hare who had done done a lot of heavier stuff he was a boston guy he had done like stuff 
like Hedwig and the Angry Inch had done a lot of arrangement for like the musical for that. Um, but he also had done a bunch of Pixies records. Boston guy had done a lot of old Boston hardcore stuff too. So he seemed like a good fit. Uh, we gave ourselves kind of a tight budget time-wise to make it and ran into so many issues. So it was kind of like we fought making that record the whole time. It was just the four of us and Tim. Uh, a lot of the songs were underdeveloped. I had a couple of ideas on the album that made it in and then some that didn't. Um, but overall, I really like it. I just, I, I had a fun time. I had a good rapport working with Tim and I think I might've been the only person who had a good rapport <laughs> working with Tim. But we were in one studio here and the studio ended up kind of fall, literally falling apart. Like none of the gear worked. There was, it was right next to active train tracks. So you could only, you had to wait like every 15 minutes, there'd be a two minute train going by had bad power so you couldn't run real amps it was like it was just a mess and my friend ethan at the time was playing auxiliary for kings of leon who has like a really nice studio in town and they were in la making a record not in, not in their million dollar studio here they were in a different million dollars <laughs> but he said that they would be willing to rent the studio to us so we went in and kind of did it in their practice space which you know had like a nice neat console it was like a really it was very posh everything about it was like look at this you're kind of like in there and you're like so this is what happens when you we sell like millions and millions of records you get this type of treatment <laughs> uh but yeah i mean i had a fun i had a fun time making that record i think that vacancy is probably like gonna i think for me in terms of the long term vacancy and shutter are very are like siblings i think in the sense that they're kind of they don't they're not as cohesive as some of our other records i like a lot of those songs i think the vacancy might have been better if we broke it up into two eps and released it as two separate things because i feel like there's different flavors and maybe we might have been able i think it, it would have made maybe more sense as two semi-cohesive eps as opposed to one thing but i mean stuff like mary on there is undeniable i uh, many maybe tennessee is like one of my favorite lead lines that i've written which we have never once played that song but it kind of reminded me a lot of uh of like a stone temple pilotsy thing and um i think my favorite song on that might be uh two letters i think that was the the opener on that and kind of just heavy and then kind of drips out a little bit for the um for the for the verses but that was that was pretty fun that was another one where pretty vacant was the was the single that they selected and that was kind of one of the ones because the whole it's it plays really weird and it was way more straightforward and then i think it was one of the things where we were hanging out and tim was like i don't know, try something different make it industrial like do something weird with the drums and chris was like what about this and he was like sure give it a shot and then it just stuck and all of a sudden the song came out and they're like they want to do push this as a single i was like really <laughs> Shit. Okay. Well, whatever. Not fair on that record. I think is also one of my favorite Bayside songs, but primarily it's an acoustic song. Awesome. Uh, so move on here to uh, Interrobang. And Interrobang again. Like I think Interrobang and Killing Time for me are number one, two as far as my favorite Bayside records. Um, we did this with Cameron Webb in California also, and this was very rehearsed. We had we had been writing and demoing together. A lot of the songs have been put together prior to that. And Cameron definitely has a, has a has a discography of a lot of heavier music. And we had known from the beginning that this was this demanded to be heavier. We wanted to kind of we really took a step back and we're like, well, look at what we play in our shows. Like most of the stuff, like when people are like, you need to play this. It's like we have to play stuff like Montauk. We have to play Devotion. We have to play this. It's like all the songs that we're talking about, like not being able to not play are kind of like faster and heavier and kind of like more you're pushing your vocal you're really kind of like get pissed like think about being mad so a lot of that was born out of that sentiment and yeah cameron did a great job he's such a he was a, he was amazing to hang out with and he did a really good job of extracting performances in a way that didn't feel off-putting or forced 
So my working relationship with him was dynamite. I had a really good time with that whole process. Anthony and I were just living in an Airbnb out in um, Santa Ana, and Chris and Nick live only a few miles away from where the studio was in Costa. Uh, I think the studio studio might have been in Costa Mesa, but everyone was like real close together. So, and the studio is not. It was very functional. It was not like a luxurious studio, but it just felt good. Felt really homey. We did drums for that record at Dave Grohl's Six O Six Studio in Northridge. Huh? It was actually a lot of fun. Cameron had done almost all of the Motorhead stuff in the last fifteen years prior to him passing, so he had. Uh, I think at some point he had done some recordings at Six Six with Lemmy, uh, with Dave being a super Motorhead fan. So he had some sort of connection there. And he's like, do you guys want to track drums here? I might be able to get it cheap. And we're like, yeah, I'd love to see it. So we got there and it's like the whole like, would you like to see all the stuff? And we're like, yeah, of course, show me everything. <laughs> so similar to that Kings of Leon thing, it's like, oh, this is what happens when you sell this many records. This is what this is what it looks like when you're a band at this level. Um, but yeah, everything that was just overwhelmingly just such a such a positive Everything about that whole recording experience was positive. Um, as far as songs, there's so many different styles on that, too. I think like stuff like Heaven, I got to basically rip off Thin Lizzy as much as I wanted to in the solo section of that, which I really liked. Um, but a lot of the stuff, like, I mean, I got to play all the solos on Let Me Kill Meister's, one of his stage amps, which was also kind of, he had a bunch of his gear there. So he has those bass super leads, uh, bass 100s. And when we were looking for solo tones, he was like, do you want to, what do you want, what do you want to play? I was like, just out of curiosity, let me throw an overdrive. I make like a clone clone, like a overdrive pedal and I had a, uh, what is it? A full drive too. And I was like, let's just throw a couple overdrives in front of the bass amp and just like dime it out and see what it sounds like. And we got it up, and I was like, shit, man. I was like, it sounds it sounds good. I was like, could we maybe find a better tone? Be like, yeah. I was like, well, this is a great story. I'm playing out of, like, le- these are, like, motorhead amps. I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, just kind of rocked through that stuff. But that was the same thing, basically, me locked in, in a room in Santa Ana just playing guitar for 12 hours a day. Tall is probably my favorite song on the record. It's just fun to play. It's got a fun solo. It's got like it has all the that that one hits all the that one hits all the markers for me. That that in Killing Time are definitely as far as like from uh, from my perspective or from being a from being a part of the process. Those two were if I could go back and relive as like a weird brain vacation. If I could go back and and redo those like four weeks for either of those records, that would be a that'd be a fun time. Nice. Uh, so unfortunately, you guys you guys had a 2020 tour uh, lined up this this year. 2020 is our 20th anniversary as a band so we had actually a lot of secret stuff planned and it all went away so <laughs> it's one That's... of those what are you gonna do you know it's one of those things i keep thinking about it is like if this happened to just us it would be a much harder pill to swallow but not like n- not in the misery i guess a little bit of the misery loves company but it's just like when everything is happening at a level that becomes global it's really becomes it becomes pretty difficult to start finger pointing and being like this sucks this, why is this happening to me be like this is happening to everyone like this right. isn't you. What was the decision to? Because I see some bands are just kind of pushing dates and postponing rescheduling. You guys, you guys did uh, cancel the tour completely, right? Or actually had holds for another run that was going to start in August, and it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen that quick. And the more we keep pushing it, like Ticketmaster got cute with the whole like, no, you can't get a refund. So at this yeah, point, like, yep. money's tight for everyone. I mean, so. I don't know. It just felt kind of like a dick move to be like, hey, we're just going to keep this money in our back pocket until we eventually play. And if you can make it, great. And if you don't, well, go fuck yourself. So I don't think that that's what bands who are doing. that. It's not like I'm speaking for people who are like, I have a postponed. I don't I'm not an asshole. But it just seemed for us with the prospect of us not being able to rebook in a in a reasonable amount of time. I just didn't want to tie up all these people's money because that tour had sold. It was selling really well. So we found ourselves in that position where we had to have that conversation and be like, 
man, I hope this doesn't destroy the economy to the point where when, when we do rebook this tour, people are going to have either the A, the interest to come to a show or B, the money to go to a show. So. I think people are going to want to be getting out anyway. I, th- I think yeah. the tickets will sell, sell just as uh, well as they did for the original tour. But um, I do have a couple fan questions here. I have, a, sure. I have a few, actually. Two of them, I have. They, they were older fan questions from other interviews that I liked, so I, I asked them for every uh, interview. Uh, do you or anybody in the band have any weird superstition, like pre-show rituals before uh, shows? Actually, to be honest with you, no. We kind of are pretty... I've, you know, I've, we've hung with other bands that have like little ritual things where they like chant something or they have like a thing that they'll sing together or they're like, we just basically show up in a room like five minutes before we play. And we're like, hey, guys, we're like, cool. Yeah. Like, anything I need to know? And we're like, no, we're good. And they're like, all right, see you, see you out there. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, like ritual is getting is getting there on time. That's our yeah, ritual. <laughs> um, if your band could tour with just one other band for the rest of your career, who would that band be and why? Hmm. Hmm. You know what? There are bands that I would really like to tour with that I think we, I think, I think that there are bands like Rise Against that their fans have no idea that we exist or bands like Coheed and Cambria where I'm like, I feel like those fans might get more of a kick because I feel like overwhelmingly, I think I get from a lot of people who see our band for the first time or were exposed to our band who had no idea. They're like, I just saw you like on Victory and knew you were affiliated with these bands. I assumed you sounded like this. (laughs) And we're like, no, we don't really sound anything like that. They're like, no, you don't. Uh, and then you know especially it's like specifically for guitar stuff they're like oh no 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 you're not like a, just like a three chord band i was like no not at all no i wish i'd known like i i never i always just blew you guys off so i think that there would be some merit in going out with a band like like rise against who is like a heavier band that plays like or like kohi that's probably you know an element of prog in there as well who doesn't also who also has a, maybe kohi that doesn't have like a traditional vocalist in the sense that unless you're a mega rush fan or something where you're like oh getting lee or like kind of a unique timber because i think anthony definitely has like a unique voice as well mm-hmm. i think with a band that like that who has maintained something that's like interesting or has an aesthetic that is similar to something that we have uh that we have not been but somehow has remained underexposed in some respects yeah not that... trying to be like i and, and again i have no miss i have no uh i'm not misunderstanding it and being like we're, we're the biggest band in the world nobody's ever heard us i'm like i understand there's limits to this but i do think that there are certainly we have future audience members who have never heard us before and i think that's been the big challenge is just figuring out like what what are the people who would like our band listen to and where would we go from there because i mean certainly there are bands that i would love to go out with just as like you're our friends Mm-hmm. actually that's probably more the question than like no no no, no. That, that that was that was a good answer though the i mean yeah either either way but i, I like that answer though to a band that would bring a new fan base in but you still kind of sound similar but yeah, yeah. i mean I've met, I've met a handful of the rise against guys and we have like a ton of mutual friends and i was like they're all sweet dudes and i would love to i think maybe and yeah well let's see i've seen Kobe yeah, and i'm sure. like this would be an amazing tour i'd love to do this <laughs> but just you know one of those things where it's just someday someday maybe it was well, kind of I I saw Coheed with Taking Back Sunday. It was kind of like that. Like I I just wouldn't think those two would really tour together. That I don't think they have the, the same exact sound. And I think they're two different fan bases, kinda to to an extent. And, yeah. And it, and it worked. I mean. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've been we've toured with TBS a couple of times. They were all. That's like one of my favorite. They were definitely one of my favorite bands to tour with. As far as just the general like getting on and actually, if I had if, from a friend standpoint, if I had to tour with one band forever i might be amberlin we had done some touring with amberlin back in the day and i i think that those guys are having considering that they haven't even been a band for six years at this point i still feel pretty close to most of the guys in that band uh, wow. 
and I, you know, we had on our last run when they had done that show with Under Oath at, in Tampa in an arena, we were excited because we knew we were going to be down around the same time. It was like, you're going to be home. We're going to be through. And then ended up being on exactly the same night. And we we're like, well, that's, <laughs> that's the, there, there it is. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> um, the, the next one here, the, the, those were the two that I ask every show uh, now, but uh, the next one here, do you know the story about the band name, the, the origin about going to a Newfound Glory show and having a, uh, a demo to give? I know you weren't in the band at the time, I guess, when that would have happened, uh, but what, what do you know about that story? I think it's probably true. I think that they recorded, I think Anthony and three other people that I may have met once a long time ago um, kind of did a just by the seat of the pants demo. And we're going to see Newfound. And I know Newfound Glory has been one of Anthony's favorite bands forever. I mean, talking about a band that really incorporates like heavier music, like pop punk, and but like also really coming from a, a melodic sensibilities place that's way up there. Uh, I think they probably had a demo and they were just trying to get to the show. And they're like, we don't have a name. And I know <laughs> that they are, Anthony's technically from a place called Glen Oaks, but it's all like right in Flushing area. So that was uh, one of those things where he's like, the next one here uh the difference between recording an acoustic album versus a traditional album uh what goes into the process of each there and then are there any plans for another acoustic album uh loose plans i mean in the sense that we did it once and people liked it and then we did it again and people liked it so we will definitely do it again and it's fun it's nice especially the first one was all like just kind of reimagined Bayside songs. The second one only had one extra new song in it. Um, and then kind of like revisiting other stuff and figuring it's almost like being in a different band and figuring out how you would cover Bayside. Um, but those are, it's fun. It's a lot. I mean, that one certainly is a lot less prep work as far as like, you're not writing from scratch. It's like developing parts, but ultimately I'm developing parts that I already wrote. So it's like, it's like, Hey, what are you going to play here? I'd be like, well, I was playing this and this, and now I got to figure out how to play it on an acoustic guitar. So like, some of the stuff that has more intricate soloing is a little bit weirder and I kind of have to come up with workaround stuff. But in the case of songs like, I think like Pigsty, which kind of ended up turning into like a little bit of a Spanish classical vibe in there, which again, going back and being like, I'm a fan of like Aldemiola and I feel like it's not, it's not an Aldemiola song by any stretch, but like a lot of the soloing in that is for me is like kind of reminiscent of that influence. And I just feel like that song plays out a lot better. Stuff like Not Fair, which is an acoustic one that was kind of born out of vacancy as well, was one of the ones where I feel like that just took on a totally different life as an acoustic song. It almost has more of like a French gypsy vibe thing to it, more so than uh, kind of like just a blasting rock and roll thing. Um, so the acoustic thing is, is a ton of fun. It's just experimentation and the pressure's off to some degree because it's not like your flagship product. It's not like... It's like if Burger King came out with a shitty chicken sandwich, you'd be like, oh, this chicken sandwich sucks. Be like, but but they're known for this. They're known for a Whopper. So it's like, I don't know why I'm making a fast food analogy <laughs> for that. But it's like, I feel like it's 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 an, it's obviously like a, it's almost like, it is almost like existing as a second band. We do the tours for it and it's like a very different show. And I feel super fortunate that I'm in a band that where we can pull off something that sounds completely different from like the main the main thing and it still is like it's not like oh god like right you know that that is cool like people in the back being like oh i can't watch this <laughs> so it feels it feels good now but we will definitely do more acoustic stuff there's other things we've done cover record we did a cover ep and that's all stuff that we'll we'll do again it's just a matter of kind of timing you know, it's like everyone's, uh, Anthony and I live here in Tennessee and Nick and Chris live in California and Anthony has a daughter. I've got a couple kids. So 
we have a lot of time this year. Maybe we'll see. You know, now that we're not touring, so <laughs> it might be, yeah. might be a good time for that. Uh, kind of a follow up to that. Um, I know you mentioned doing acoustic tours, but are there any songs on just your traditional tours where you only play acoustic versions of those songs that aren't already acoustic? Megan was one of the ones actually. We we've only played Megan as a full band a hand like a handful of times, but typically that would just be something that Anthony and I played. We had done it when, or actually no, we definitely didn't do it when we were on tour with Popes. That would have been that would have been a little bit embarrassing, <laughs> but that was one that we kind of recorded acoustic, I think, for our first record, and we primarily play that as acoustic, even during a regular show. Um, don't call me Peanut. Obviously, is mostly Anthony doing that. But if if I don't have an acoustic guitar with me and we're playing it in a live set, I'll bring out, I'll just kind of clean it up and play the leads on a clean, and stuff like with Mochiano. I think for a couple of tours, I had actually brought a mandolin out with me to kind of do the the outro lead stuff on that. Um, but I'm trying to think of other songs. Not fair, honestly. I think I think the probability of that showing up in a full set as a full band is slow, is slim. But I can't imagine playing an acoustic set and not playing that also. Uh, so the song "The Walking Wounded" was on the NHL 08 video game. Uh, how did that end up being a thing? And, and are you guys hockey fans? Well, Nick is the biggest hockey fan that I've ever met. Actually, <laughs> Nick, Nick, I think if three things went away and if if there was no hockey star wars or i guess cold brew coffee nick might actually die from depression i feel like those are the three <laughs> things that power him a thousand percent but nick i feel like i only know about hockey because i hang out with nick a lot and uh but he loves it that was amazing for him also I was gonna say, it must have been pretty <laughs> it's a weird edit in that in the game because they don't play the full chorus it's like it's like who would want to die a child there's like a whole Oh no! It's like who would want a child? They kind of cut the chorus in a weird way because I guess they didn't want to. They didn't want to say who would want to. They didn't want to die in there. Yeah, so yeah, the, course, yeah. It's like a really weird cut. But that was one of those things where I was like, "We're in a video game." I still have a copy of it. I don't have an Xbox, but I have a copy <laughs> of that game. That'll be. There are a handful of things that I have in a bin in my room over there that exist only to basically try to impress my children in 15 years, and they will all undoubtedly fail. The only thing that I think that I have that might elicit some sort of a positive reaction from my son is that we were in penthouse one time. So I have a, I have a penthouse magazine and in it is like, I have my picture in penthouse magazine, which I thought was like a weird, that's my, that might be my favorite accomplishment as, as being in a band for this long. It's like, well, I was in penthouse once. Like, yeah. That's awesome. And it's like 10 year old me is like, I couldn't stop high-fiving hugging myself. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the show is called for the Berg based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania here. Um, do you have any favorite venues or cool show memories or uh, any places you guys would like to go out, you know, to hang out or eat or anything while on tour in Pittsburgh? It's actually, we filmed the video for duality in Pittsburgh. On a cold instant, right run on is at first right up by the right, pretty much right off the river, and uh, it was freezing, and we filmed it all outside at night. It was like January; it might have been like 15, 20 degrees out, but that's all filmed in Pittsburgh. But we have a lot of we're really, we're super good friends with the Punchline guys. That's one of the bands that we toured with forever, so nice. we've known them for a long time. So going through Pittsburgh has always been has always meant hanging out with them. We're friendly with the Anti Flag guys as well, um, but I'm trying to think we. As far as Pittsburgh goes, we predominantly have played kind of like outside of Pittsburgh. And we played in like, like Mr. Smalls isn't technically Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's right there. But yeah, yeah that, that that counts for these uh, interviews. But yeah, you're right. And then Alter Bar is, was Pittsburgh. Alter Bar was right. Pittsburgh. 
Um, yeah, everyone's been saying Altabar, but <laughs> I know Altabar went from was it went from church to venue back to church. Right. That's it's not. It's not a. It, yeah. It's not a venue anymore. I like. I actually. I really like Mr. Smalls a lot, except for the fact that there is absolutely nothing to do there. There's nothing to eat. There's nowhere to go. But it's a very comfortable room. I love the shows there. I like the staff at Mr. Smalls. It's just like if you're there. Once you're there, you're like we're here. There's nothing. Right. Uh, but they have done a lot in the last 15, 16 years to make the accommodations inside a little bit more comfortable. Oh, yeah, like, the, the nice bar and all that in there. Yeah, I love, I love that place. It's a it's awesome. And then Altar Bar is, was, was fun, too. Kind of like a similar vibe, like church church vibe, but way more to do around there. You got, like, Permanente. I know everyone loves Permanente Brothers, and I'm not going to say anything disparate. I don't love <laughs> Permanente Brothers, but I'm not going to say anything bad about it because I feel like I'm going to get my ass kicked. <laughs> no, listen, I, I, I messaged... Um, Bo from Seosin and he I asked him if he would do the show and I guess they're they're closer to the Philly side he's like man the only only things I really like or that I know about Pittsburgh is they have some shit sandwich with that they throw a bunch of shit on it and eat and I was like dude that's cool say it on the show I don't care like that's funny I don't I don't hate for Manti Brothers but it's like one of those things with like In-N-Out where everyone's like In-N-Out's the best be like is it though it's kind of just a hamburger. It's kind of just an okay hamburger. And people are like, Permanente Brothers, be like, listen, if I wanted cold french fries on a sandwich, I could do that at home. You know what? I enjoy infinitely more going into Permanente Brothers and sitting and having a beer. Oh, and yeah. Fun atmosphere. Yeah. I just think for atmosphere, it's like way funner. But every time someone's been like, here's a sandwich from Permanente Brothers, I'm like, it's great. Thank you. <laughs> like, I was like, I'm hungry. I'll eat it. But like, right. But, um, do, you, do you know what the term jagoff means? Yeah. It's a Pittsburgh term, means dickhead asshole. I've been asking all the guys this. Um, I'm kind of batting 500, a little half, you know, just give me a little the the run around here, but the other half will answer it. So, uh, being famous, being in these bands, meeting a lot of people, a lot of famous people. Anyone that you were really excited to meet that just turned out to be a jagoff? Hmm. All right. How about this? We did a show. We did a radio show in Tucson, Arizona, with Unwritten Law and and Jet. And uh, everything about the show was going to be fun. They were like, there was like a radio show. So they were like, we're going to pick you up in a limo at the airport. We're going to drive you to your hotel and we're going to come in. And we had backline gear because we are all flying from New York. And I guess someone had gotten in touch with Unwritten Law and they had agreed to split backline with us. And then we got there and nobody, nobody in Jet or Unwritten Law would even look at us. And then like after we got there, we're like, what gear are we going to be using? They just basically were like, you're not using our gear. you got to go figure out something. So we ended up scrambling. I was like, you know what? Fuck those guys. I don't know them. And maybe they're super nice. And maybe there was a misunderstanding. But like at this, that then they were like, you can use our gear. No, you can't. But yep. you're in Arizona and the show's tonight. And what are you going to do? I was Figure like, it out. Yeah, that's definitely a good answer. Um, so the last thing I want to say before I uh, we sign off here, that that is all I have. But my fiance wanted to say that she loves you guys. And I, I wanted to uh, get, get that in before we sign off. Tell her thank you very much. Hopefully she'll be able to see us sometime this millennia if, yeah. uh, if uh, the stars align. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Nope. All right, thank you guys for joining me for episode 11 with Jack O'Shea from Bayside. Join us next time. I'm going to have Dan Jacobs from Atreyu. Don't want to miss that one. Thanks, guys. Oh,